This morning, we will be looking at a portion of the resurrection narrative, and we'll be reading that from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, the verses 1 to 12. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. The focus for the sermon for this morning will be verses 6 and 7. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Easter weekend is a time of celebration for men and women across North America and children. For many, it's a time to take time off, to relax and enjoy fun and fellowship with your families. For others, it's a chance to run around finding eggs that uh, Bunny has hidden. What's behind that is never quite explained. For others, it's like a second Christmas. Family members get together and exchange gifts. For the Christian world, however, the celebration of Easter is a celebration that's so much more than eggs, than bunnies, than presents or family time. This Easter Sunday, Christians around the world celebrate one of the most joyous events in the history of mankind. We celebrate Christ conquering death and showing to all that we too can share in the new life that he's obtained for us. For centuries now, around the world, Christians have been greeting each other on Sunday morning with the words, He is risen, and the response, He is risen indeed. For centuries, this has been a day of central importance to Christians globally. But this event, too, has come under attack. 
especially in the last number of decades, the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has run into direct opposition, both from atheists and from some church leaders. Eric Alexander, for example, the former chair of the board for the Wesley Foundation, vice president of the board for The Way Youth Center, and currently a writer for the website Progressive Christianity, writes, there are many alternative ways to view the resurrection in a spiritual light, or a purely mythical light to convey a lesson, or a metaphorical light of the rebirth that we all have when we give of ourselves for others. There are so many fulfilling, inclusive, and enlightening ways to experience Easter in the light of Christ once we move beyond the idea of a physical resurrection. Is this true? Is it time for us to move beyond the idea of a physical resurrection and go in the direction of progressive Christianity? If we look at the reality of the situation, brothers and sisters, we will see that this is not the case. That instead, we can still joyfully confess Christ is risen indeed. And we'll see first the fact of his resurrection, second, the consequences of his resurrection, and third, living in this resurrection. In the opening words of our passage, we read, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's at this point that many historians, scholars, and academics are in agreement. The vast majority of the academic community accepts the fact that there was a real historical Jesus. And in this group, there's a good number who are willing to admit that perhaps when the, tomb, when the stone was rolled away, they did walk up and they did look in and see an empty tomb. But what follows is where we run into trouble, where they run into trouble. We read, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. This, the secular world cannot accept. This is what becomes a stumbling block to so many. And it was the case right back to the academics and philosophers of the ancient Greek world. We read in Acts 17, where Paul was preaching in the presence of the greatest thinkers of his day, in the Areopagus. Then he climaxed his sermon with the resurrection, that, and many of them simply could not get themselves past that point. We read in Acts 17, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. For those who mocked, the resurrection simply did not fit into their worldview. Why? There is a simple reason why. Many of the Greeks of Paul's day, as well as the vast majority of the secular world today, have adopted a naturalistic worldview. 
As such, their worldview rejects the possible, the possibility of the supernatural. That means everything has to follow according to the laws of nature. They say, what's dead is dead. We can't make that which is dead alive again. There are no ways to scientifically reproduce this, therefore it's impossible. Their argument is that nothing can break the laws of nature. And since miracles either suspend natural laws or break them, and they come from a background, they come from a platform that nothing can do this, then therefore miracles must not exist. This also means that anything that we would call a miracle today is either explained away with the explanation of, oh, there's natural causes at work here that we just don't understand yet. Miracles simply don't have a space in their worldview, and therefore they must not exist. And it's with this framework in mind that they approach the resurrection of the Christ. The very fact that he is God in the flesh is of no consequence to them, because there is no such thing as God in their eyes. Therefore, reports of his resurrection must either have some natural explanation, or else it's a hoax or a lie. And sadly, many Christians have bought into this way of thinking too, not taking into account that it is coming from a worldview which rejects the possibility of God. And so there are a number of theories that have arisen, that have been adopted by those outside the church and even by some within the church to explain what happened on that day when Christ arose from the dead. The first is the hallucination theory. They say that the apostles hallucinated. What they saw wasn't really there. Another theory is the swoon theory, that Jesus Christ went into a, a kind of semi-coma state. You might say he, he passed out from the stress and blood loss on the cross and that he... Uh, survived having a spear stabbed through his side and he was put into the tomb and he woke up at one point in time and managed to roll the stone out of the way, scare away the soldiers. The theft theory is another one, that the disciples somehow got past the guard and stole the body, that what the guards reported was actually the real story all along, where they said, oh, uh, we fell asleep, and the disciples came in and stole them. Now, I'll save going in-depth into these theories another way. If you want an in-depth explanation and refutation of them, you can do a quick Google search on common theories for the resurrection. But the main point that I want to draw your attention to, which gives a brief answer to most of these theories, is what the woman observed here in verse 3. Here in verse 3, we read that they went in and they did not find the body of Jesus. There was no body. There still is no body. At any point, at any time, the Romans, the Jews who were standing in opposition to them, anybody else could have discredited this young Christian movement by bringing out a body and saying, you say he's resurrected? Here he is. What are you talking about? And that would have stopped the movement dead in its tracks. 
but there was no body. If there was a hallucination, there would have been a body. If there was a swoon, and then he managed to wake up for a time after that, there would have been a body later down the road. And if you take into account that the disciples might have stolen it, well, then you have to take into account that they were able to hide it for all this time because something happened around the time that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Something unique. Something which caused the disciples to, who, who were afraid who ran away when Jesus was caught, to come back with courage, to come back with passion, with a fire in their hearts. Something which caused them to be willing to suffer terribly and to die. Something happened which allowed a whole generation of Jews to leave their deeply rooted beliefs and put their reputations, their livelihoods, and even their lives on the line. Some people might say, oh, they did it for personal gain or for other personal reasons. Well, how can that be explained if they were willing to suffer and to die? What's the gain in that? And what was this event that happened? What was this event that happened that drove the men to be able to go to such lengths? Well, this event was the most well-attested fact in ancient history. It was the resurrection. This was not something that happened on one person's personal testimony. As with Joseph Smith's revelation for the Mormons, it wasn't on one person's personal testimony as with Muhammad's revelation for the Muslims. No, over 500 people saw his resurrected body, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, many of whom were still alive at the time of the writing of the letter and would be able to verify it or falsify it if it wasn't true. We have more documented proof of the resurrection than of any other incident in history. In addition to that, the the documents referring back to the resurrection were written close to the time of the incident, which makes it historically reliable in the eyes of academia. And it is written from four different perspectives, each of the Gospels. Yes, today they are bundled together into one Bible, but they were originally four different documents written from four different perspectives that were later brought together to form the scriptures. This strengthens their witness. Those who say that even this is, enough, is not enough are holding the Bible to a different standard than they hold any other piece of literature too in ancient history, then they hold Caesar's Gallic Wars or then they hold Tacitus's Annals too. The only hang-up that exists here for them, the only hang-up that exists is the fact that according to them, resurrections just can't 
happen. And therefore, the resurrection didn't happen. But we know, we can see through what the scripture reveals to us that this is the case. When we hear of the different people confessing the fact of the resurrection, then we know this to be the case. When we see people willing to put their lives on the line, we can see there's a spirit who's at work in them, who is spurring them on, bringing them to lengths that no one else would be able to go to naturally. This resurrection did happen. And if by academic standards this should prove to be true, these documents, historical documents, should prove to be reliable, then how much more if we accept that this Bible, this Word of God, comes down from heaven, how much more then should we accept that it is true? We can have faith in it. We can express the very same words that we find in the opening sentences of our text. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Now for some, it might be tempting just to stand by when more progressive Christians say that they don't believe in the resurrection. That the words in verse 7 of the angels who met the woman at the tomb are of no value. There they say, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again, according to prophecy. But we need to realize what we're giving up if we do so. As this is the case, we need to look at the consequences of Christ's resurrection, beginning with the consequences of denying it. The fact of Christ's resurrection has important consequences for the souls of God's people. The Holy Spirit especially highlights this through the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's open to that for a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll look at verse 13 and following for a moment. You'll be able to find that on page 1323 of your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 and following. So here the Holy Spirit writes through the Apostle Paul, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And here he continues with a logical argument. Yes, and we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, from whom, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is also not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's the final conclusion you can reach if you decide to give up the historicity of the resurrection, even in the face of all the evidence. If 
Christ did not rise from the dead as confirmation of our death to sin and our being raised to a new life, to holiness in him, then you are dead in your sins. You are still in your sins. You are without hope before the righteous anger of God against sin. The only way that you can get out of that situation is to take a step back from what the Bible defines as sin and interpret sin as only the really bad things that happen, that people do. To suggest that God isn't really grieved by the little things you do wrong. And to suggest that what good you do is not just meeting God's standard, but it somehow adds to what is right. It somehow adds to your salvation and lets you gain merit in the sight of God. But then you run into trouble with God's word. Because such choices, such decisions that you make, are things which all redemptive history, all that is shown to us in the Bible, shows are not options. The Bible clearly marks such positions as wrong. And even if we do take that position, then we are further without hope. Why? Because if there is no resurrection, then all who have died have died for good. There's no future. There's no reward. And if you are in a situation like many Christians in Paul's day are, where standing up as a Christian means you'll suffer, then what's the point, Paul says? If it's only for this life that you have hope in Christ, then, as we read, you are of all men the most pitiable because you are standing up for a faith which will ultimately fail you, both in this life and in eternity, if the resurrection has not happened. But this is not the case for us. We know that Christ has risen, and we hold fast to that. And so... What the Holy Spirit says to us rings out loud and clear in our hearts. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The full fruit of this resurrection isn't something that will happen instantly, this very moment, because Christ himself is the first fruits, and we won't feel the full benefits of it until he fully comes into his own on the last day. But we will experience it. Verse 23. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. But recognizing that there's still an event that needs to come to pass before we can experience this fullness, we read on. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And these are not just any enemies. We read that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We can be assured that because of Christ's resurrection, we too will be resurrected because Christ has overcome and because he will overcome. He does this because he has the authority to. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. 
But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Christ's resurrection means resurrection from the dead, both physically and spiritually for the Christian. We are raised from being dead in sin, and we will be raised at the last day. These are the consequences of his resurrection. What a joyful hope that we can look forward to. What rich grace. We can now live in the new life which we share because of Christ's resurrection. So the question is, what will we do with the new life, living in this resurrection? Last year, CBS released a documentary named Life After Death Row. This documentary followed unjustly convicted people who spent years in prison and then were exonerated. They received a new lease on life. These men were walking dead men. And suddenly, many of these people don't know what to do with their lives once they're released. Some even descend back into a life of crime. But some, some dedicate themselves to a new life. They dedicate themselves to new causes. In some cases, they even dedicate themselves to helping others, helping those who have been unjustly accused. For the Christian, they have somewhat of the same experience. The Christian was under the death penalty. In fact, he was dead in his transgression and sin, Ephesians 2. Because of his sins before a holy God, he was a walking dead man. But Christ came, and by his suffering and death, this man is now suddenly able to walk free. The reality is what is symbolized to us when we look back. That's what's symbolized to us when we look back to our baptism. That's what calls us to action. As we read in Romans 6 verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what happens for the death row inmate when he's been vindicated? It would be sad for him to go back to his previous life, to descend into a life of crime. No, he's going to walk out. He's going to take his first breath of freedom, and then he's going to do what he can to take full advantage of this new lease on life. We were on death row, but we were there as guilty. Christ vindicated us and gave us a new lease on life. He took the crime on himself, and then he paid the penalty that we can walk out blinking into the sunlight. And we are asked, what are we going to do with this new lease on life? Brothers and sisters, let us walk in newness of life. Let us take hold of the reality that's been promised us. As we read further in Romans 6, now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can walk with God in this newness of life. Walk with him close by our side to enjoy the freedom and new life that we receive in him. And this becomes especially a reality for us today 
Today of all days, above all other days, because we are celebrating Easter. We are celebrating the historical resurrection of our Lord. Let us rejoice and walk in light of that this Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.